Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 58, Space Shuttle Endeavour Falls in Love. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and Modern History, together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Kiss who we kiss. Visit Circus of Values when we visit Circus of Values. And today I'll be discussing Season 3, Episode 23, Bart's Friend Falls in Love, which first aired on May the 7th, 1992. And I'm going to be talking about the Space Shuttle Endeavour, because May 7th, 1992 the very same day that Bart's friend Falls in Love was first aired, saw the maiden flight of the Space Shuttle Endeavour. Endeavour replaced Challenger, and I'll be taking the opportunity to talk about the history of spaceflight, the history of NASA's Space Shuttle programme, and one of my favourite people, Nazi rocket scientist turned NASA employee, Werner von Braun. Can I just check, is that with a U or a W? <laughs> in this case, it's with a U. Ah, oh, shame, shame. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore Retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcastretrospecticus.org. Happy New Year, Tom! Indeed, Happy New Year, and sorry to everyone for this episode being a week late. Before we take a little bit of an extra break over Christmas, given the in the run-up to Christmas 2020... There was all sorts of shenanigans going on, especially in the UK. So we've had coronaviruses carried on being a global menace. And we had the will they, won't they do a Brexit deal saga. They ended up doing a deal on Christmas Eve. So the country could have gone very bad very quickly. But, you know, we just wanted to give ourselves a bit of breathing space just in case there was an attempted armed coup in the USA or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, ridiculous to think now, obviously, but yeah, it's uh, sorry about that. Um, but one incredible, world-shaking piece of news did occur while we were on hiatus. That's right, the KLF are on Spotify. Oh, yes, they are, aren't they? Yes, I've I've listened to uh, very little but those eight tracks that have uh, have been put up, including all of the ones that we discussed. And at some stage, uh, as soon as I can be bothered, I'm going to go back and put those into our playlist in their rightful places. Uh, Although I'll also be keeping all the bonus tunes in there because they're generally quite good. So speaking of music, Gareth, I hear you cry. What was the UK number one when this first aired on May the 7th, 1992? Well, I'm warning you, it's not good. I had no recollection of this song at all, but I I did recognise it when I uh, looked it up and listened to it. It's a band called KWS with Please Don't Go. Now that's up from number nine the previous week to the top slot this time round. Who are KWS? Exactly. I had to go full Wikipedia on this one, so citation needed, folks. But apparently, KWS was a British dance act from Nottingham, England, consisting of instrumentalists, stroke record producers, Chris King and Winston Winnie Williams, and vocalist Delroy St. Joseph. The band's name is an acronym of the members' surnames, King Williams and St. Joseph. So there we go. They had an immediate number one with this. It was their their first song released. It went to number one for five weeks. And especially since there's relatively little to say about the band themselves, I was glad to find out there's a bit of an odd story behind this. 
So the song is originally by KC and the Sunshine Band. And it did all right. It got to number three in the UK in 1980. And it got to number one in Australia, South Africa and Canada. So in 1992, it was covered to great success by W. Huh? Yes, W. That's the word double followed by the word U for clarity. They are an Italian Eurodance band who took their peppy house arrangement of Please Don't Go to number one in Belgium and the Netherlands. So what's this? Well, it turns out that what KWS did was make a sound-like cover of a song that was already a cover. Basically, there was an issue with the UK distribution deal for W's version, and KWS quickly cranked out a version that could be distributed in the UK and was essentially absolutely identical. The similarities actually meant that Network Records, who released KWS's version, and had tried to get W's version beforehand, so they were absolutely banged to rights, wound up having to pay compensation to the Italian band. Note that Casey and the Sunshine Band appeared not to have got even remotely involved in this, which is probably for the best, as it's already quite complicated. The final thing to mention on this song is that there was an unsubstantiated rumour that this Nottingham-based band released the song as an exhortation to footballer Des Walker, who left Nottingham Forest for Sampdoria that year. Unfortunately, in an interview with the BBC, Chris King denied said rumour, which is sadly the most boring outcome to that line of inquiry, and I'm very dissatisfied by that. <laughs> is that the song that goes, please don't go, please don't go? Is that that? Yes, yes, that is the one. It's I vaguely remember it. It's Yeah, it was just on the fringes of my mind, but but there we go. Um, I've, I, I have pretty much already forgotten it as well, which uh, <laughs> shows you that's a marker quality right there. So returning to the episode, the US viewership for this was a Nielsen of 12.4, which is approximately 11.4 million households. It was 35th overall for the week, but once again finished behind Beverly Hills 90210, In Living Colour and Married with Children, as only the fourth highest rated show on the Fox network. The production number was 8F22, and the credited writers are Jay Kogan and Wallace Wolodarski, as we discussed in episode 3, The Morris Worms Odyssey. The chalkboard gag is I Will Not Snap Bras, and the couch gag is the couch tipping over backwards. But what happens in the episode? Well, the Simpsons are going to have a suspiciously familiar-looking chase as Bart steals Homer's change and runs downstairs, where a chasing Homer loses his footing and becomes essentially a boulder of sorts, before Bart slides out under the garage door, pausing only to collect his lucky red hat. Escaping via the school bus, he finds Millhouse, whose dad took him to Circus of Values the previous evening and bought him a lucky eight ball. The two then have fun predicting certain events with it. Will Bart pass his English test? Outlook not so good. Will Millhouse get beaten up today? All signs point to yes, as Nelson confirms the ball's accuracy by thumping him. And then a surprising set of answers. Will Bart and Millhouse be friends when they're old? Don't count on it. What about when they're high school dropouts living off Uncle Sucker? It looks doubtful. And by the end of the day, a stark, simple no. But what could possibly rend two best friends in twain? Enter a new transfer student at Springfield Elementary, Samantha Stanky, who is introduced to the students once Skinner is over his Vietnam flashback. And Milhouse is smitten, even when the class are forced to sit through frank, straightforward sex education in the form of Fuzzy Bunny's Guide to You Know What. 
as narrated by actor Troy McClure, who you might remember from such educational films as Let Paint, Delicious But Deadly, and Here Comes the Metric System. In short, Fuzzy Bunny begins to notice that his voice is changing, he has acne, and he has fur where there was no fur before. He and his girlfriend Fluffy Bunny don't give in to their throbbing biological urges before marriage, though, due to distraction via wholesome activities in suitable venues, three of which are mentioned. Tom, what venues do they go to? They go to the boat show. They do? They go to to the ice cream social. Mm -hmm. And they go bottling, I think. Well, yeah, the the, the park is the other one that's mentioned, but various other activities are shown, including a bowling alley and a shooting range. Anyway, the lesson ends with Edna stating that none of the kids will ever marry for love and they'll all do it out of fear of dying alone, before Bart tries to play God by creating an ape-stroke-human hybrid. Bart is feeling edged out by Milhouse and Samantha's growing affection, and this gets worse when they visit his treehouse, and he realises that with a girl around, he won't be able to strut around nude. His range of girl comics extends only to Radioactive Man vs. The Swamp Hag, so he's off to get some copies of Bonnie Crane, Girl Attorney, Pumpkin and Duncan the Twinkle Twins, and or Little Knee Socks from Lisa. And when he returns, Milhouse and Samantha are kissing. Nine minutes in, and our B-plot finally arrives. Lisa witnesses Kemp Brockman talking about obesity on the television, including the dramatised death of an impotent diabetic Santa, and resolves to help Homer win his Battle of the Bulge. But not before we've heard the recipe for the Good Morning Burger. We take 18 ounces of ground beef and soak it in rich, creamery butter. Then we top it off with bacon, ham, and a fried egg. I mean, yes, please. Yeah. Put, put me down for one of them. Probably couldn't do more than one, but definitely. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's what we call food porn nowadays. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, another thing the Simpsons predicted. Mm-hmm. So, um, Milhouse is so into his kissing that he doesn't notice Bart orchestrating terrible baseball card trades in his name. But it's back to reality when Samantha has to return to her anti-boy father. Then, bam! Back to the rich creamery butter, as Homer calls Lisa a lying scumbag when she says she has an effort-free method of weight loss. Subliminal learning. They send off for a tape from... (sighs) Marvin Monroe, again! Luckily not ordering the hostage negotiation one. But they're out of subliminally slim, so they send him a vocabulary builder. The next day he sounds a little different, though lamentably his gastronomic rapacity still knows no satiety. Bart's on a downward spiral and is forced to hang out with Martin, who luckily is just as unpopular with the ladies as he is with the chaps, probably due to his lute playing. And Homer is forced to reflect that forbearance is the watchword when the triumvirate of Twinkies overwhelms his resolve. But in the boudoir, the gourmand metamorphosizes into the voluptuary, and Marge is soon silenced. And then, it's itchy and scratchy. Oh, it feels like ages, it really does. This episode is called, I'm Getting Buried in the Morning. Scratchy is getting married, so Itchy decapitates him and his bride with a sharpened hat, and drives (laughs) off into the sunset, dragging their heads behind his car. Bart is getting further isolated, and he's eventually dumped as a third wheel, but realises if her father catches them in Bart's treehouse, it's problem solved, and he conspires to have them broken up, given away by his Machiavellian countenance as Homer retrieves a sextet of ale. And catch them he does, whisking her away to an all-girls school. But Bart hasn't really got his friend back. 
He's got back a shell of a boy for whom it's recess everywhere but in his heart. Lisa wakes Homer, not for the vernal equinox, but for his date with the weighing scales, whereupon he discovers he's gained 13 pounds, and vows a pox upon the disingenuous Montebanks with their subliminal chicanery, destroying the tape. He is soon reduced to asking for a metal dealie you use to dig food. <laughs> Bart owns up to Millhouse, but forgiveness is on the other side of a pitched battle, wherein the eight ball that started the whole thing is destroyed. Reunited, they go to St. Sebastian's School for Wicked Girls to say goodbye to Samantha with a massive tub of gummy worms from Circus of Values. Samantha is happy at the new school, run by French-Canadian nuns who never let her oot, but she is still willing to risk 50 rosaries for a last kiss. And finally, in a still picture at the end, Homer says, increase your wordiness. <laughs> Tom, let's see if you've been listening to that subliminal vocabulary builder I got you for Christmas. Mm. Can you define satiety? Um, it's something like something like being so full that you burst, or something like that. I'll give you that. It's down as belt-popping fullness. Yep. How about triumvirate? Now, I did freeze frame this earlier. I think triumvirate is defined as three guys giving orders. That's the one. Yep. We then move on to gourmand. Like a gourmet, but fatter. Yep. Um, Machiavellian. <laughs> it quite simply says, I don't know. It does indeed. I did look it up, though, and it actually means cunning, scheming, and unscrupulous, especially in politics. And finally, boudoir. Uh, where a French guy does it. Yes, it is. I love every bit of vocabulary that Homer gets in this episode, hence my, my quoting or paraphrasing of literally all of it. Mm -hmm. um, and it really it really perks this episode up for me. I, I like the episode anyway, but just, just adding on that, that little B-plot really, really puts it over for me. What, what did you reckon to it? Yeah, th this episode's a lot better than I remember, and it's, and it's very much a case of, oh, it's that one with the sex education stuff that's in it. Yeah, it's great. It's got some it's got some great jokes, great timing. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Excellent. So there's one very obvious character debut in this. It's Samantha Stinky uh, Stanky, as played by Kimmy Robertson. Not too much is known about Samantha as she is that rarest of things these days, an actual one shot character. There is a lookalike extra, if you will, with a similar character model who can sometimes be spied in the background of some scenes, uh, but it isn't Samantha. Samantha moved to Springfield from Phoenix because her dad owns a security company and was attracted there by its high crime rate and lackluster police force. And she is presumably still at St. Sebastian's, longing to get oot. <laughs> Kimmy Robertson, on the other hand, is an accomplished voice and in-person actress who played Lucy Moran in Twin Peaks and that new version of Twin Peaks, and also in the film Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. Although apparently she got cut out of that last one, which is a bit of a shame. She also voiced Penny in the reboot of Secret Squirrel in the early 90s, and appeared in a short TV film called Battle in the Erogenous Zone, about which I can find out nothing, and I'm relatively glad about that. <laughs> Seriously though, I'm, I'm taking the mickey a bit, but she's got a decent CV, and her performance here I think is great. So finally we're on to Did You Know? Bart's initial escape from Homer is modelled on a sequence from the 1981 Harrison Ford film Raiders of the Lost Ark. And as I say this, I'm fully aware that yes, yes you do know that. I'm not even sure why I included this one. <laughs> Did you notice the rabbit slippers though? No, I didn't. 
they are well to me anyway they really look like the rabbits from life and hell oh right yeah. I, oh i did miss that lisa's copy of eternity magazine mentions an article about the year 2525 with the caption was Zagar and evans right which is a reference to Zagar and Evans' 1968 Billboard chart number one in the year 2525. <laughs> it's not very good. Billhouse has a poster of Sideshow Bell on his wall, but more pertinently, he also has a poster of Spinal Tap from the episode before this one, Season 3, Episode 21, The Otto Show. In Season 2, Episode 21, Three Men and a Comic Book, Bellhouse wants to spend his share of the comic money on a 1973 baseball card of Carl Yastrzemski with big sideburns. In this episode, he swaps his Carl Yastrzemski card, which is shown to have big sideburns, with Bart for a headless Omar Vizquel card. Or at least Bart steals it off him and he doesn't notice. But it does show that he must have got his hands on it in the meantime, which I can only assume is explained in a six-issue arc of the comics at some stage. Hmm. So, Tom, on to memeable moments. Mm, well, this one is crammed with them. So I've gone for 12. So the Magic 8-Ball, I, I think, is a meme in itself. Uh, one thing we haven't really talked about, there's some very good Skinner action at the start of this one, because he keeps going between Samantha Stanky and looking out the window in agonised pain as he remembers what happened to him in Vietnam. So, so, so I've gone for one of his lines. Every night I wake up screaming. So anyway, how are you? <laughs> so that's number two. And then from the sex education thing, I've gone for four individual ones. So it starts off with Mrs. Crabapple saying, Isakiel and Ishmael, you may now go into the hall and pray for our souls. Uh, you then have Troy McClure presenting Fuzzy Bunny's Guide to You Know What. And then there's the list of the things Fuzzy Bunny is noticing, one of which is simply more fur. <laughs> And then, and then during the wedding night, you have number six, which is Mrs. Crabapple taking a drag of a cigarette and just casually saying, she's faking it. Number seven, the good morning burger. Number eight, that's a load of rich creamery butter. Uh, number nine is the brilliantly crafted scene of Martin playing the lute. And then you see Bart running out in the corner through the window. Just <laughs> great. <laughs> Uh, number 10 is possibly my favourite line ever from Millhouse. We started off like Romeo and Juliet, but it ended in tragedy. Then you've got number 11, which is Millhouse standing despondently on the climbing frame. There lies a broken man. <laughs> That's very, very memorable. Whenever anything sad happens, you just go straight to that one. And then finally, after Homer, for some reason, loses his immense vocabulary, he says... Where's that metal dealy you use to dig food? Which is number 12. <laughs> oh, yeah, especially hearing all of that back, I realise how many fantastic moments there is in this uh, this episode. I think 12's a, a memeable moments record for us thus far. I, I could be wrong about that. Um, but it, it does occur that it's, it's only going to get more meme as uh, time goes on. Mm, absolutely. Anyway, for now, space is the place. So, Tom, take us there. It is. Right, space. We're in space. Okay, so the Space Shuttle Endeavour, built to replace Challenger. So the Space Shuttle program is a hugely important part of NASA's history and the history of space travel, 
But before we get to it, I'd like to take the opportunity to go over the history of space travel in the exciting world of rocketry. Now, the basics of rocketry have been known about for centuries. Making a rocket is essentially dead simple. You just take a cylinder, cut one of the ends off, fill it with fuel and ignite it. The energy given off by the burning fuel gives thrust and it propels the rocket skywards. The earliest rockets date from the Song Dynasty in 13th century China, where they were used for fireworks. But the basic principle is the same, regardless of whether you're shooting off fireworks or flying someone to the moon. Like with most inventions, humans used rockets for war pretty much as soon as they were available. They are mentioned in the Hua Longjing, a 14th century military treatise, where the rockets were multi-staged, more and multi-staged rockets later. In India, the Mysoreans used iron-cased rockets against the British East India Company during the 1780s. The British then nicked the idea and created the Congreve rocket, which went on to be used against the forces of Napoleon. Rocketry really took off in the 1920s when the American engineer Professor Robert H. Goddard created the world's first liquid-fueled rocket. Before, rockets used solid fuel, such as gunpowder. His rockets were much more efficient, and with the calculations he made in his paper A Method for Reaching Extreme Altitudes, he believed they were capable of sending objects into space. Towards the end of the First World War, Goddard worked on a rocket-based weapon for use in the trenches. This primitive technology would go on to become the world's first bazooka. Of course, one group of people took rocket technology and warfare to whole new levels, the Nazis. Towards the end of the Second World War, the writing was on the wall for them. In the East, they were defeated at the Battle of Stalingrad, where they lost over 400,000 troops, and from that point on they were in retreat. In the West, the Nazis suffered regular bombing campaigns by the Allies, with the D-Day landings occurring on June 6, 1944. The Nazi leadership put a lot of investment and indeed hope into so-called Wunderwaffe, or wonder weapons. The idea was that incredibly smart German scientists would come up with new weapons that would turn the tide of the war at a stroke. The Nazis had a nuclear weapons program, known as the Uran Project, but it didn't get out of the lab phase. Far more successful were the Vengeance, or V-weapons. The first of these, the V-1, was an early cruise missile. Also known as flying bombs, they were aimed at their targets and launched off what looked a lot like a ski ramp. They had a range of about 200 miles, flew at an altitude of around 3,500 feet, and flew at a speed of 340 miles per hour. And funnily enough, they weren't very accurate. There are plenty of stories of people on the ground who would hear a low hum, then the hum would stop as the engine cut out. The bomb, or doodlebug, would then simply fall to earth, and its 1,800-pound payload would detonate. In total, V1s accounted for the deaths of 6,000 people in London. Defence against V1s was difficult, but it was possible. Around 10,000 V1s were launched in London, and around 4,000 of them were destroyed en route. Some were hit by anti-aircraft fire, some were caught in what were called barrage balloons. Barrage balloons looked like big inflatable aircraft, and they had cables attached to them. Sometimes V1s would get caught in the cables and rendered useless. The job of dealing with the V1s was known as Operation Totter. RAF fighter pilots, if they were skillful enough, could intercept V1s in mid-air and shoot them down. However, they had to keep their distance because of how powerful an explosion from the V1 was. Even trickier, and more impressive than my book, was the wingtip manoeuvre. To execute it, a pilot had to fly alongside a V-1 and push the wing of it down using the tip of their own aircraft. If successful, the guiding gyroscope of the V-1 would be overridden and it would tumble towards the ground, which is 
pretty awesome. As far as that's I amazing. The, the, the idea, whoever came up with that one, I assume out of desperation. Um, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. So while it was possible to mount a defense against the V1s, the same thing cannot be said about the V2s. These were the world's first long-range guided ballistic missiles, and they were the brainchild of one man, Werner von Braun. Now, as you might have guessed from the von in his name, von Braun was something of an aristocrat, born Werner Magnus Maximilian Freeherr von Braun. Indeed, the Freeherr in his name is a title, the equivalent of Baron. When he was 12, he experimented in rocketry by attaching fireworks to a toy car and blowing it up in a busy burning street, something he got arrested for. In 1930, he became a student at the Technical University of Berlin, where he worked on rockets with another pioneer of rocketry, Hermann Oberth. He completed a PhD from the Friedrich Wilhelm University in 1934. Now, was von Braun a Nazi? Well, the short answer is yes. He applied for membership on November 12, 1937, and was given membership number 573869. However, von Braun would later claim that he joined the party in 1939, and he had to in order to continue his work on rocketry, which just wasn't true. He later became a member of the SS, where he was given the rank Unterstrumführer, the equivalent of lieutenant. Again, von Braun would claim that he had no involvement in the organisation, he was just pressured into it so that he could continue his work. So what about his work? Well, in 1937, the Nazis built the Army Research Centre near the village of Pienemunde. This was used as a base by the team led by von Braun, and it was where the V2 rocket was developed. By the way, if you want a weird laugh, go and look at video footage of the testing. It's lots of rockets failing to take off and exploding on the launch pad, as if the thing was being developed by Wiley Coyote. Nowadays, we call it a fail video. It's like... <laughs> Five, four, three, two, one, fire. And then you could just see in the distance a, a, a blackened uh, bipedal coyote sort of blinking. <laughs> yeah. So, so these problems with the V2 almost cost von Braun his life. From October 1943, von Braun was placed under SD surveillance, the SD being the intelligence wing of the SS. A report into him concluded that he was disappointed that he wasn't working on a spaceship and he was considered to have a defeatist attitude. Heinrich Himmler was of the opinion that von Braun was a communist sympathiser, and that the failure of the programme was down to sabotage on von Braun's part. Von Braun was arrested by the Gestapo and held for two weeks without charge. He was only released after Albert Speer persuaded Adolf Hitler that von Braun was essential for the V2 programme. So, you know, he was right up in the, in the minds of the top Nazis there. Hitler himself kept a keen eye on the progress of the V-2, and by 1944 he ordered the production of V-2 rockets and the deployment of them against targets in Europe. The rockets were assembled at Mittelwerk, a factory built completely underground so as to avoid Allied bombardment. They were built with slave labour from the nearby Mittelbau Dora camp. Conditions in the underground factory were terrible, and thousands of people died in their production. A functioning V-2 rocket was a deadly, if not particularly accurate, weapon. They could be launched from mobile Miller wagons. These could go practically anywhere, and only one was ever successfully destroyed before it could be launched. After launch, the rocket would reach the edge of space, then come crashing down on its target at up to three times the speed of sound, and throwing up approximately 3,000 tonnes of material into the air. I mean, there's no defence against that, whatsoever. 
As for targets, the country that suffered the most V2 attacks was not the UK, but Belgium, with 1,600 rockets being fired at Antwerp alone. Antwerp was an important port, and the Nazis wanted to destroy it because it was part of the vital Allied supply lines. The most deadly attack on Antwerp occurred when a cinema was struck and over 500 people were killed. The severity of the attacks on London were diminished by some quite frankly genius espionage. The British managed to feed the Nazis false stories that the V2s were overshooting London by 10 to 20 miles. The Nazis suggested their aim, and many of the rockets subsequently fell either on the sparsely populated county of Kent, or they fell into the English Channel. Once this started happening, British intelligence fed the Nazis more stories saying that London was being struck by V2s on a regular basis. This deception probably saved thousands of lives. Weirdly enough, the only other English city to face the threat of V2 rockets was Norwich. <laughs> yeah. So, as the Nazis lost ground in the Netherlands, London became out of range, and the only city left was the capital of Norfolk. In total, 28 rockets came down on various villages throughout the county, many of which contained children who had been evacuated from cities. One even fell on Ipswich. Although no one died from these attacks, it's estimated that 2,700 people were killed by V2 rockets in London alone. In early 1945, the Second World War in Europe was reaching its conclusion, with the Soviets only 100 miles from von Braun's Pienemünde base. Not fancying the prospects of surrendering to the Soviets, von Braun took steps so that if he did surrender, it would be to the Americans. He therefore fabricated documents and moved himself and 500 others to the factory at Mittelberg which was much further away from the front line. While there, he took blueprints to the V2 and hid them in an abandoned iron mine. As the Allies fought their way further into Germany, the SS took von Braun and his team to a small village in the Bavarian Alps, with orders to shoot them before they could be captured if the enemy approached. Fearing they would be targeted for Allied bombing, von Braun convinced the SS to split them up. As the Allies advanced into Bavaria, they captured most of von Braun's team. Von Braun himself, however, made it to Austria with his brother Magnus. They came across an American private on a bicycle and attempted to surrender, with Magnus telling him, my brother invented the V2. The Americans were very happy to have Von Braun in their custody, as he was top of their blacklist of scientists and engineers that they wanted to talk to. He was detained at the US interrogation centre at Kranzberg Castle, a facility they affectionately called the Dustbin. From him, they learned the location of the iron mine where he had hidden the V2 blueprints, and they were recovered in May 1945. Von Braun, along with over 1,600 other German scientists, was taken to the USA as part of Operation Paperclip, a secret program by the US Joint Intelligence Objectives Agency. The Cold War was just heating up, and the Americans needed all the intelligence they could get. As well as Von Braun and his team, the Americans picked up Nazis from all branches of the sciences. These included Richard Lindenberg, a neurosurgeon who worked for Hugo Spatz, the man who conducted a lot of research on the brains of executed prisoners. So Operation Paperclip, hugely controversial. Once in the USA, Von Braun and his team were taken to Fort Bliss, an army installation outside El Paso, Texas. While there, they instructed American military personnel in the use of rockets. As part of the Hermes project, they assembled several V-2 rockets after the parts for them were recovered from Germany. At the start of the Korean War, Von Braun and his team were moved to the Army Ballistic Missile Agency at the Redstone Arsenal in Huntsville, Alabama. While there, they developed the Redstone rocket, the US's first large ballistic missile and a direct descendant of the V-2. 
Von Braun was keen on public engagement in science and wrote a futuristic novel about flying to Mars, which was set in 1980. <laughs> he also collaborated with Walt Disney, no less, and together they made a television movie called Nazi Rocketmen Are Our Superiors. <laughs> uh, just joking. It was called Man in Space, and on its first airing on March the 9th, 1955, it attracted 40 million viewers. In the 1950s, the Americans lagged behind the Soviets in the space race. Soviet firsts included Sputnik 1, the first artificial satellite, put in place on October 4th, 1957. As well as Laika, the first dog in space, they also had the first two animals to orbit the Earth and survive. They were called Belka and Strelka, and Strelka had a litter of puppies, one of which was given to Jackie Kennedy as a gift. On September the 14th, 1959, the Soviets landed a probe, Luna 2, on the surface of the Moon. Of course, on April the 12th, 1961, Yuri Gagarin became the first man in orbit. Two years later, Valentina Tereshkova became the first woman in orbit, and in 1965, Alexei Leonov became the first man to free float in space. And he had one hell of a time, because he was in his little capsule, orbiting the Earth. He gets all kitted up in his spacesuit, and... He opens a hatch to get out, and for 10 minutes, he's just in space, just attached to the, just attached to his little capsule. And after 10 minutes, they say, right, okay, you better come in now. But because of the various physics, his suit had expanded, and he couldn't get back in the module. So, you know, there was panic for quite a while, and then he realized, actually, if I just open my suit just a little bit, so he so he let out some of the uh, some of the gas in his suit, and he was just about able to squeeze back in again. But could you imagine being the first person <laughs> having a spacewalk and going, "Oh, got a problem here." I mean, the 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 chill. I'm feeling it right <laughs> here, to be honest. Just just the, the the mere idea of being that that far away from help in a situation no one's ever been in before, and you know, uh, running up against an unexpected obstacle. Um, yeah, fantastic. Well, congratulations, Alexi, for your uh, your safe return. He did get back safely, I should He did. He did, I yes. Phew. So, so the progress of the Soviets alarmed the Americans. On July 29th, 1958, President Eisenhower got busy and signed the National Aeronautics and Space Act, the act that brought NASA into existence. The Marshall Space Flight Center was opened at Huntsville, with Von Braun as its first director. While there, Von Braun was instrumental in developing the Saturn V rocket, an absolutely gargantuan multi-stage rocket used in the Apollo program, which eventually took Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin to the moon. One huge issue with the Saturn V was how expensive it was. If you think back to Apollo 11 and that gigantic rocket on the platform ready to launch, and the subsequent video of the astronauts being picked up from the sea, it's important to remember that pretty much all of the assembly couldn't be used again. What would have been far better was a craft that could be sent up into space and come back again multiple times. Therefore, NASA came up with the Space Shuttle program. The idea was presented to the public in 1972, where it was dubbed a Space Bus. The building of the first shuttle, later named Enterprise, began in 1974. Work on three other shuttles, Challenger, Discovery and Atlantis, began in 1979. NASA also began construction of the fifth shuttle, codenamed OV-105, in 1982, but its production was shelved as NASA thought that four was going to be enough. 
Now, I loved watching space shuttle launches when I was growing up. While on the launch pad, the shuttle was strapped to a huge external tank, which in turn had two solid rocket boosters attached. These were used to launch the shuttle, and they were jettisoned as part of the launch sequence. Originally, NASA intended to fly 24 space shuttle missions per year, but in reality, only 135 missions were launched, of which 133 were successful. One unsuccessful mission was designated STS-51L, and history remembers it as the Challenger disaster. Now, the Challenger disaster was particularly tragic because of what was going on with the mission. In 1984, President Reagan announced the Teacher in Space program, a program intended to inspire school children around the country to become interested in science in general and in space flight in particular. 11,000 teachers applied in the hope of teaching their children from space. In 1985, NASA selected Krista McAuliffe from New Hampshire to be the first teacher in space, with Barbara Morgan as her backup. On the morning of January 28, 1986, Approximately 17% of the US population turned on their televisions to watch the launch, including thousands of children who were watching at school, excited at the prospect of witnessing Krista McAuliffe become the first teacher in space. At first, everything seems to be going well, but 73 seconds into the launch, Challenger broke up. Everyone on board was killed, including McAuliffe. It's not known whether the crew were killed instantly, or if they died when the cabin hit the Atlantic Ocean. The tragic event traumatised a generation of American schoolchildren as their excitement instantly turned to horror. It was referenced in several kids' TV shows to try and help them come to terms with it. As for what caused the Challenger disaster, it was investigated by the Vodges Commission. The commission included Neil Armstrong, Chuck Yeager, the first American to break the sound barrier, Sally Ride, the first American woman in space, and the famous theoretical physicist Richard Feynman. They came to the conclusion that faulty O-rings were to blame. These rings sealed a joint on the right solid rocket booster. The extremely low temperature that morning, it was just 2 degrees C at the time of launch and even colder overnight, were too cold for the O-rings to function properly. They failed, and pressurised hot gases came into contact with the external tank, causing the structural failure that led to the disaster. The accident grounded the space shuttle programme for three years, with it not recommencing until the discovery lifted off on December 29, 1988. Challenger was the first space shuttle to be lost, but it wouldn't be the last. On February 1st, 2003, the space shuttle Columbia disintegrated as it re-entered the Earth's atmosphere, killing all seven astronauts on board. With the loss of Challenger, NASA restarted the construction of OV-105 in 1988 and completed it in 1990. NASA launched a competition to name it, with schoolchildren asked to write essays about why it should have the name that they chose. Surprisingly, the kids came up with something sensible and it was named Endeavour after the ship that took James Cook on his first voyage of discovery in 1768. Thank God it wasn't the British space shuttle, otherwise it would have been Shuttley McShuttleface. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Indeed, the shuttle carried a piece of that ship in its cockpit. The name caused a bit of confusion. As it was named after a British ship, it had the British spelling, so E-N-D-E-A-V-O-U-R, as opposed to E-N-D-A-V-O-R. In fact, NASA themselves spelled the name wrong on one of their launch pads in 2007. So, with the replacement for Challenger ready to go, Endeavour launched for the first time on May 7th, 1992, the very same day that Bart's friend Falls in Love was first aired. Its mission, STS-49, was a fun one. Its aim was to retrieve a satellite, Intelsat 603, 
which had failed to enter its correct geosynchronous orbit when it was launched two years previously. In the first attempt to do this, the astronauts Pierre Thuo and Richard Hibb attempted to attach a bar to the satellite so that it could be pulled towards the shuttle. They tried this twice, and despite the first spacewalk taking nearly four hours and the second one five and a half, they failed. After that, they improvised. They were joined by Thomas Akers and spent over eight hours grabbing the satellite by hand. I mean, it's, I've seen footage of it, and it's almost like when Principal Skinner tries to grab the weather balloon, the <laughs> high on Big Butt Skinner. Only three astronauts in space just go, come here, you stupid satellite. And all of that in slow motion as well. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this was the first and only three-person EVA, extra vehicular activity, what we call a spacewalk. And until 2001, it was the longest too. However, they were successful and the satellite became functional. On each day of the mission, the crew were woken up with a song in a tradition that went back to the Gemini program. First morning, it was God Bless the USA, a fairly obvious and highly patriotic choice. The day after that, it was Rescue Me by Fontella Bass. <laughs> I mean, that's just, that, that's, that's bad mojo there. That it's, is taking the It does not all go well. Yeah. Day after that, it was the theme tune from Winnie the Pooh. Although it was Mother's Day and it was chosen by Kathy Fulton's children, Kathy Fulton being one of the astronauts. As it happened, Endeavour did not need rescuing and they returned to Earth in an orderly manner. In total, the Space Shuttle Endeavour carried out 25 missions, with most of them being to do with assembly of the International Space Station. On its 20th mission, designated STS-118 and launched on August 8, 2007, among the crew was Barbara Morgan, the educator who was a backup astronaut to Krista McCulloch for the Teacher in Space program. On STS 118, she was a robotic arm operator, coordinating the transfer of over 2,000 kilos of supplies to the International Space Station. The retirement of the Space Shuttle program was announced in January 2004 by President George W. Bush, with the intention that the remaining missions to the International Space Station would complete, but that would be it. The final mission, STS 135, launched on July 8, 2011, and returned to Earth on July 21st. During the mission, the four astronauts were subjected to two Coldplay tracks, as well as tub-thumping by Chumbawamba for some reason. <laughs> so, after retirement, the four remaining space shuttles were taken to museums throughout the USA. If you want to see Endeavour, you'll have to go to the California Science Center in Los Angeles, where it currently resides. But, oh yeah, you want to know what happened to Werner von Braun, don't you? Well, he retired from NASA in 1972 and took up a job with Fairchild Industries, an aerospace company based in, appropriately enough, Germantown, which is in Maryland. While there, he helped to set up the National Space Institute, an organisation that promoted the US space programme. However, in 1973, he was diagnosed with kidney cancer. In 1977, and in very poor health, he was awarded the National Medal of Science and Engineering by President Gerald Ford, the US's highest science honour. Von Braun died on June 16th, 1977, and was buried at the Ivy Hill Cemetery in Alexandria, Virginia. Okay. Wow. I find space fascinating. I know very little about the uh, the space missions, so that's uh, that's been an education for me. And of course, I have to uh, now parlay this into a Simpsons reference. 
I don't think it's going to be very difficult. Firstly, as we've called attention to this uh, delicious pun before, in fact, even earlier in the episode, it would be remiss of me not to mention that in Season 2, Episode 8, Bart the Daredevil, we're introduced to a professional wrestler called Professor Werner von Braun. That's Braun with a W, as they make sure to point out, who is having the wrestling match of the century with Rasputin the Friendly Russian. And in what was an astoundingly easy piece of research for me, a space shuttle of sorts appears in Season 5, Episode 15, Deep Space Homer. Homer is in that space shuttle, and the shuttle goes to space, and shenanigans ensue. It'll be a quick one to review when we get there, then. However, it can't have been Endeavour, as the design used in The Simpsons is radically different to NASA's space shuttle design. And I've no idea why they did that. Although when I looked it up, it's just just one of the people involved in the show went. I thought this looked better. So probably probably easier to draw, I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah. And the space shuttle's always had a bit of a weird design for me. It's, it's funny you said it. Um, they they were originally going to call it the space bus because it does look a little bit like one. There's no. Um, I guess you don't necessarily need aerodynamics in space, but it's it's not the sleekest of things, is it? It's. Uh, well, I just remember when I was growing up, I thought the space shuttle was like the coolest thing ever. You know, a, a, a reusable way to take people into space. And, you know, when it was up there in orbit and it had the payload bay open and a robotic arm coming out, it just looked awesome. And if anything, we've gone backwards a bit because the Americans don't have anything like the space shuttle nowadays. I mean, they're working on stuff. You you know, I, I think some of the SpaceX technology is amazing. I mean, the the rockets that go up into the air and can then guide themselves back to Earth, so that you can fill them up and use them again. I think I think that's absolutely incredible. But yeah, it it, it will never be as cool as the space shuttle. No, I, I get you. The space shuttle was cool simply because it went into space. It didn't have to look like uh, something something uh, beautiful and sleek. It was uh, it was very much of its time, a bit like Concord, really, sort of um, of a of a design we shall never see again. No, oh. yeah, I've made myself sad now. <laughs> but again, that's we, we, we are living in a strange time where it seems that in some odd ways technology is going backwards. Like the major appeal of Concord was that you could, as a passenger, fly at supersonic speed. So if you wanted to and had enough money. You could fly from London to New York in like three hours or something. And you can't do that anymore. Cause, you know, there was, there was that time when the Concorde, uh, crashed and they went, well, it's not safe anymore. So retire all Concorde. And no one said the bother coming up with a supersonic liner since. If you're listening uh, now and you can come up with a supersonic uh, passenger jet, um, could you just try and get that off the ground for us, please? Pun very much intended. Um, <laughs> I would like to live in an era of supersonic flight again. Mm. But I fear we're straying slightly from the subject matter, so shall we wrap up? Uh, I think so. Excellent. Well, don't forget you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus Email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.